0: I want to invite you to Mark chapter 14. I want to hopefully pick up where we've left off. Over the last several weeks and months, we've been walking, hopefully kind of briskly through the gospel of Mark at the same kind of pace that Mark seems to tell us the good news that is of who Jesus is and what he's done, and he, he tends to say things very quickly. In fact, before you've even had time to process what it is that he said, he's already on to the next story. So if you find yourself being a little bit ADHD or a little bit scatterbrained, Mark is the gospel for you, right? He uses the word immediately more than 40 times, to kind of give that tone like, and then, and then, and then, and then you won't believe what happened, and then, and immediately, and then. This is, this is where we are. And so over the course of the first two-thirds of this book, we have like kind of blistered through the three or four or five years of Jesus' public ministry up until the last third of the book of Mark, where everything slows down immensely. And while he took 10 or 11 chapters to cover the first three years of Jesus' ministry, he takes the last five or six chapters to cover simply the last week of Jesus' life. So that we would see that as the breathtaking pace has exposed to us who Jesus is and what he taught, as we make our way toward this ominous thing the cross the death of jesus things become slower and the details become much much more relevant so he walked straight into jerusalem a place where he knew they would betray him and turn him over he walked straight up to the temple and began to disrupt what have been what would have been the most important symbols of religious life of that day to demonstrate that He was bringing new symbols, a new religious life, overthrowing old traditions to create new traditions found and ultimately fulfilled in Him. But as the people began to turn on Him, one after one, those who were closest with Him, we saw last week, the beginning of Mark chapter 14, began to abandon Him. And last week we saw very clearly, I think, that Jesus would lay down His life for those who would betray and abandon Him. In the last part of Mark chapter 14, we see that Jesus is going to lay down His life for those who would accuse and even deny Him. So we pick up, I hope, in verse 53, where we left off. Every single person that He has known who was close to Him, whom He had been investing in and leading along in his public ministry, abandons him, and finally we even see, as we talked last week, the the first instance of streaking in the Bible where there's at least one man, Mark it might even be Mark, telling the story about himself where not only was everyone leaving him and abandoning him, this man apparently, a young man who was normally not wearing much but only a linen cloth, was willing to run away naked and forfeit his own shame and dignity for the sake of saving his life and not standing with Jesus. They've all left him. One of his closest, Judas, has betrayed him, and the rest of them have abandoned Jesus altogether. Beginning in verse 3. After he'd been seized, verse 53, it says, And they, those that came to seize him, they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and him, warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree and some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you. But he, that is Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witness do we need You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself She looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a while, will deny me three times. And he, that is Peter, broke down and wept. I admit to you that this will be like last week, one of the more somber times that we spend together when we open the Bible, looking toward what is probably the most dark moment of Jesus' life and and Mark seems to want to convince us over the next couple of chapters, maybe even the most dark moment in history, the darkest of all times, in which God turns His face away from His only Son, Jesus. And the precursor to God doing that is, seems to be the central theme of this entire chapter. Last week, again, we saw Jesus preparing to lay down His life for a bunch of people who betrayed Him and then completely abandoned Him, some even radically so. And this week we see the end of chapter 14 demonstrating for us that Jesus is going to lay down His life for those who will accuse and deny Him. And the structure and the language and all of these things set up for us, I believe, a great contrast that we're meant to find. Namely, that there is a difference between the way that Jesus bears witness to the truth of God and the way that His followers bear witness to the truth of God. True versus false witness. You can see this in the structure. So we have one of three, and this is a beautiful thing that most scholars will refer to. This is three different times in the Gospel of Mark. There's these sandwiches. Again, um, I love this. Even smarter people than me use food analogies, so I get excited about that. But if you're a part of my gospel community, you've already nailed this. You could probably stand up here and teach about this. But when Mark tells stories, he likes to do so in what some scholars call a sandwich. Namely, he tells you kind of a narrative that seems to have two corresponding themes at the beginning and the end, and then he sandwiches or just kind of interjects what he really means to interpret the two connected themes right in the middle. Right? So I don't know if you caught the, the sandwich here is the beginning starting in verse 53. We have Peter in a courtyard, right? This the story begins with Peter in a courtyard. And then the story ends, maybe the other piece of bread, let's say in the sandwich, with what? Peter in the courtyard. And in both cases, we've got this kind of a story about Peter in the courtyard, but you're not meant to only think that the story is about Peter in the courtyard. And so Mark interjects, I would argue and this, is, this is a real thing, the meat of this story right in between, namely, Jesus standing before a council of people. And so we're meant to understand Jesus in the council of people in reference by structure to Peter's standing at a distance in the courtyard. And we're meant to understand what it is that Peter is doing in the courtyard at a distance by means of referencing what Jesus is doing before the council. But there's also the language of this chapter, the vocabulary. I don't know if you caught this, but the, the theme that's present in this little sandwich here, this little theme, is The witness under persecution. In fact, the word witness has showed up only four different times in the entirety of the Gospel of Mark. It's played virtually no real role up to this point. The first chapter, remember um, uh, Jesus healed a man of leprosy and He, goes, he says, go before the priests and that way, you, that way your healing will be a witness to Him. He was healed of leprosy. Chapter 6, He says, shake the dust off of your feet when people reject you and reject the Gospel. And that will be a witness, a testimony literally against Him. The word is martyr. And while we tend to understand the word martyr to mean someone who dies, martyr literally just means to bear witness, to give a testimony. And in chapter 10 to the rich young man who's quoting the commandments Jesus quotes that we were not to one of the 10 commandments not to bear false witness until chapter 13 Jesus says that the people will be beaten before the councils but they will bear witness in their persecution to kings and even governors for the sake of Jesus four times the entirety of the book and yet in the course of only 7 or 9 verses it occurs 7 times Did you catch that? And then testimony, witness. Many bore false witness. There's a testimony, a witness. And over and over and over again, we have this theme of witness. And we're given two contrasts. The witness and testimony of Peter and the witness and testimony of Jesus. You see, even when the Word is absent, the theme is still present. We're introduced to this witnessing theme. Because Mark wants us to know what a true testimony to Jesus really looks like. He wants us to see the example of Jesus and then understand that a true testimony to Jesus is rendered in the context of suffering, persecution, and even for Jesus, the cross. Mark wants us to see true testimony to the nature of who Jesus is and what He has done. He tries to remind His disciples of this is ultimately found in the context of suffering persecution and the cross and just start for a minute to begin to let that undermine what you typically value and what i think this passage asks us to think about our own culture is persecution is suffering is rejection something that we exalt or think that ought to be i don't know pursued or valued in our society is that something that we think about and i would argue no in fact Watch your average, watch your average, uh, your, your commercial, and and in fact, they use the opposite of those themes to draw you in, right? Don't be like them. Let out, but instead be like this, and have be a part, be included, be be the cool kids. Have this thing. Be a part. Be the one and the same. In fact, equality has a powerful middling effect in our own society. Right? We 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 think we trump that over all things. Like it doesn't matter where you stand. Kind of there's this sameness that we want to value more than anything else. This is this is a high regard for us. And yet we find for Mark that real truth, the real testimony of the truth of Jesus is not found when we avoid suffering and find inclusion, or not found when we simply of, the the truth is not found when we try to avoid suffering for the sake of inclusion. It's not found when we try to avoid our sense of acceptance and inclusion, but instead it's, it's when we embrace our rejection. It's when we Realize that in the context of this is when Jesus' testimony is the most powerful. When what you say has the possibility of killing you, you come to find out what you really believe. Just think about this. What would you die for that you really believe? Like, what would you really die for? What would you stick your neck out for? What would you risk your own sense of acceptance to win people over to. You caught this? This is a massive theme for us. This is a massive theme for our culture. Because I would argue that we have no shortage of things that we would argue and fight about. right? Things that will interject into a conversation that will cause turmoil. right? And here's what I want to argue for you in our culture. All that excitement, I think all that passion, occupies a space that's meant to be reserved for Jesus and His Gospel. All that excitement is meant to to be reserved for Jesus and his gospel. And that's what Marx want wants us to see. What you'll die for and what you'll fight for will demonstrate what you really believe, what you really, truly value. Here's what's fun. We have no shortage of things that we could fight about. Am I right? In fact, this is the identity of our church, that we choose to disagree on those other things for the sake of agreeing on this good news of Jesus. If we wanted to, I mean, just I, 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 just, I usually jab at you just, just so you can kind of see, like, I don't know. What are your thoughts on, let's say, private school versus public school versus homeschool, And who's right? And how awful are the people who disagree with you? Right? How do you feel about GMOs? How do you feel about gluten? How do you feel about organic food? For some of you, this is going to hurt. I love you. I'm saying this because I love you. How do you feel about exercise? (laughs) Right? Crossfitters bless you right I mean like how do you feel I'm t- I mean and and not only that but how do you feel about the people who disagree with you you're like dude the world's falling apart if you would just come to see my side of this you I mean like th- look at all this and you, you get it Do you hear the passion in people's lives how do you feel this is going to hurt even more how do you feel about vaccines right and how evil and dangerous are the people on the other side you get it? You get the, the enthusiasm and the passion that we have. The enthusiasm we have. And I, and I don't want to say those things are bad things. Do those things. Love those things. God in his grace gives them to us. But friend, it's possible that that passion, enthusiasm, occupies a space that's meant to be reserved for Jesus alone. So be excited about those things, but proportionally speaking, be more excited about Jesus because here's what I think you'll find. The excitement with which you'll defend those things might actually be undermining the lack of enthusiasm you have for Jesus. And how brazen and bold you are with those things may actually be undermining any testimony that you could possibly have about Jesus. I mean, if I'm more excited about my last workout and the workout you should be doing with me, whatever that is, than I am about the salvation that God offers me in Jesus, then what am I really saying? You get it? Because both Peter and Jesus have an opportunity to say something that could cost them dearly. They have the opportunity to bear witness, to give a testimony about something that will ultimately cost them something. After all, you do not get hung on a cross by telling people what they always want to hear. But instead, the courage and the faithfulness of Jesus within such a context, namely of suffering and persecution, the cross and rejection, is contrasted to the false witness and denial of His disciples, the people who were the closest with Him. You see, Peter serves as the foil He serves as the literary function of contrast. Remember last week we saw that the foil for the first part of this chapter was a woman, an unnamed woman. Later John tells us it's Mary, but an unnamed woman comes and breaks open an expensive heirloom of ointment to anoint Jesus. She just gives this amazing thing. And what, what does it do? It serves as a contrast for the rest of the chapter. In the rest of the chapter, you have the righteous, the self-righteous people uh, accusing and, and belittling the woman for her great sacrifice. And then immediately following the great sacrifice, this woman is boldly made that causes her ridicule before Jesus. Is meant to be a contrast for the ways in which Judas and every single one of these people following Jesus abandon him the first opportunity they get. The disciple here, Peter, is meant to be the foil, he's meant to be the contrast, so that you will see what it looks like to bear false witness, and see the anatomy of a false witness, and then see the anatomy of a true witness in Jesus. And see, the gap in Peter's discipleship doesn't really go well with his boast that happened just a, a little bit earlier. So I want to walk through, if it's possible, maybe some of the, uh, what I would call is like the, the anatomy of denial. Denial. Toward the end here, Jesus has predicted Peter will do something. And I I think there's some little things that Mark intentionally includes in the story about Peter that might be helpful for us. So let's just see this. Let's see this as the ultimate failure of self-reliance. This is the ultimate failure of relying on your own strength and your own power. So I want you to see the anatomy of denial. The first thing that Peter did, he boasted in himself. All right, so this is a callback from last week. Remember when Jesus predicted that someone would betray him? What was Peter's first response? First half of this, when Jesus foretells his denial, Peter's like, absolutely not. He says, in verse, uh, in verse 29, Peter says, even though they fall away, I will not. Right? So he even like throws his friends under the bus. And boasts in himself, oh yeah, okay, Okay. yeah, I know know this has to do with something else, but he boasts in himself. Just stop right now. If you've ever heard a sermon and thought to yourself, boy, someone else needs to hear this, beware, friend, you are standing where Peter once stood. When you find yourself saying, like, this is really good, they need to hear that. Boy, I wish they were here to hear that. Thereby kind of dismissing yourself from the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, beware, friend, you're like, you're like... Tiptoeing up toward denial. That's exactly what Peter did. Oh, and this is not for me. I've got this one figured out. Beware, he boasted in himself. The second thing he did, he listened poorly. Jesus, who has done a pretty good job of doing some powerful, amazing things and even predicting the future in some profound ways, tells Peter: No, no, you're going to deny me. No, no, seriously before the night is even up, before the rooster wakes us up tomorrow morning, you will have denied me three times. And what did Peter do? Absolutely did not listen to Jesus, didn't he? Instead of, instead of responding to Jesus' words and going, oh, Jesus, help me, don't let that be true. What do I need to do to, to not let that happen? He goes, no, 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 absolutely, I will not do that. In, fed, in fact, verse 31, he says, I, if I must die with you, I will absolutely not deny you. And then it tells us that all of the other disciples said the same. Friend, if Jesus says a word to us and we find ourselves thinking, no, that applies to somewhere else, that, that applies to this other group of people, that's for them and not for us, I fear we may have missed out on the lordship of Christ. And if it's, it's one of the key ingredients that Mark tells us is the anatomy of denial. The third thing he did is he prayed too little. Prayer had no value for him. The very next thing we saw the last week is after he said, no, absolutely, I will not. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, kind of the elite, some of the guys he's really going to invest in and trust them great things to. They walk up to the top of the hill, and they make their way to the top of the hill, and then they just go to sleep, right? Evidently, the, 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 whatever, the Passover wine was a little bit much for these guys. Maybe they, maybe they partied a little too hard, and Jesus over and over again says, stop doing this, stay awake, pray that you will not, that you will not enter into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And three different times he fails them. Three different times, instead of praying with a watchful eye, praying alertly with Jesus, says they fall away. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Friend, if this isn't a warning about the the life of prayer that you and I are invited into, then then I don't know what is. Now, don't hear me wrong. This isn't where I just beat you up. Because again, there's no one I've met who just goes like, man, I really prayed way too much today. Right? I, just, I haven't met that guy. I haven't met that, that man or woman who goes like, you know what, I killed it today in prayer. You're welcome. Like I just haven't, I haven't met that person. And so what I think that means is, and, and, and that's, that's true of, of most important relationships. I don't think that, that like we nail it, like there's this time slot. Here's what I think. I think that there's meant to be an intentional effort to connect with God in a miraculous and powerful way. And if we're not doing so, then what we're doing is simply giving God the silent treatment. Make no mistake about it, it has consequences. Peter had one job. Stay awake. Pray for me. Pray with me. Jesus felt the weight of the condemnation of all the sin of the earth falling on him. And then he says, I feel weary even to the sorrow that brings me to death. See, just remain here. Would you pray for me? Side note, this is why sometimes if you, if you hang out with me, I, I, we've probably prayed in a weird spot. I've just made a commitment to this. Um, I don't tell people I, I'm going to pray for them anymore. I, I just don't, I don't do that. Like, hey, will you pray for me? I don't do that, because I lie. I'm, I'm, this is just me talking here, but like, if I go, hey, yeah, I'm going to pray for you, I probably won't. And so here's what happens. If I have the opportunity to pray for someone, I go, how about now? Yes, it would look weird. Let's go maybe out in the parking lot where it, it is, it's not so obvious. But here's why. You had one job, Peter. Pray. And Peter seemed to put it off and said, yeah, I'll get around to that. And Mark wants us to know that seems to be one more ingredient in denial. One more ingredient in self-reliance. Because if you don't find yourself going, Jesus, I need help, then you're probably implicitly looking in the mirror and saying, you got this. And if you don't find yourself humbly thinking, God, if you don't come here, this is a waste. God, if you don't intervene today, this, this day will be worth nothing. Then you're probably, whether you mean to or not, looking in the mirror and saying, we got this. We can do this. Look at the list of things I need to make sure I do today. Beware, that lack of prayer, that lack of humility, that lack of deference that we ought to show to God who is a creator of all things might be an ingredient to denial. The other thing he says uh, that Mark tells us is that he acted very quickly. Now, someone, it tells us, chopped at somebody and got their ear. Now, we don't know who this is according to Mark in the same way that Mark doesn't think that some of these details are important. he, He tends to find them maybe distracting from the story of Jesus. But John later kind of tells us some of these things. So John chapter 18 tells us that the guy who wanted to defend Jesus with a sword was Peter, chopped a man's ear off. Jesus, being the awesome guy that he is, picks up the man's ear, puts it back on the guy's head, right? Side note here, when you cut someone's ear off, it's probably not because you mean to, you're probably aiming for the head, right? And so when it cut off his ear, don't think like, oh, it, he got a boo-boo on his earlobe, right? Think, think like he was swinging at his head and probably gouged a chunk off of this guy's head, right? Jesus goes, I got this, I'm going to fix this but then he condemns the people who are coming at him in the gospel of mark it says that why are you coming at me with swords is that what you think this is about is that what you think i'm doing here i'm starting a rebellion i'm a thief i'm a pirate that i'm going to come and start some sort of a coup and fight you guys off he goes no my kingdom is bigger than this my kingdom is upside down it's not violence that brings about this kingdom. Although two times in the Gospels we hear that many will try to advance the kingdom by means of violence. But Jesus says my kingdom is upside down. My kingdom, the violent ones are at the bottom. The servants are at the top. Those that exalt themselves will the ones that will be lowered. The greatest among you is your slave. I'm not going to overthrow this kingdom and just reinstall my own kingdom that will look just like that. Instead, I'm going to overthrow this kingdom piece by piece and put in something that the world does not understand. Peter acted too quickly. He jumped in with the same kind of excitement that apparently those who were betraying and wanted to seize him had. Namely, with clubs and swords. He acted too quickly. The opportunity came, and he offered violence. Peter has a word, I think, for some of us in this room, and this might apply to me, even as well as to you. And if it's just me, then... Then, then just forgive me and show me Grace and let me have it. But I find that people who just live their life one conflict to the next do so because they think it works. If you find yourself like just living one conflict to the next, in terms of relationships, like just beware. You're doing that because you think it works. But there's a funny thing that happens with people who swing their swords. No one wants to be their friend. No one wants to be close to that person. So here's a test for you. How many people do you currently know that you considered to be very close friends that at one point you were enemies and forgiveness and reconciliation had to take place? Think very critically about this. Are there people in your life that are now presently friends that at one point you had beef, you had conflict? Are there many? Because if there are not, if you don't currently have lots of friends right now that you've experienced conflict with, here's what I can guarantee about uh, about you: you've probably just run them all out of your life. And once conflict comes, you just move on to the next one. And once this gets hard, I'm out. You see this in marriage. Man, I liked the honeymoon. That was awesome. This whole living together and seeing in one another's flaws on a daily basis, I'm out. And friendship. I'm only hanging around people that like me and exalt me. Beware. Peter acted too quickly because he probably lived one conflict to another. He lived one threat to another. Make sure you don't miss it. That works because it keeps you safe, right? Living one conflict to another keeps people at a distance. And if no one ever gets really close to you, then no one can hurt you. I get it. It keeps you safe. It keeps you at a safe distance from everyone. You swing that sword, friend. Everyone's going to be wondering when you're going to chop their ear off next. And it will keep you safe. But it will also keep you alone. And it will also, I see here, be an ingredient for denial of the love of Jesus. Friend, we embrace reconciliation. We don't fight against our enemies. We speak the gospel to our enemies and Peter acted much too quickly. He was too quick to resort to the ways of the world and begin to fight the people he saw as a threat. When you see a threat, do you see an opportunity to experience the gospel, to share the gospel, and to demonstrate reconciliation to people? Or do you simply see it as an opportunity to be right? Friend, beware. Most of the people in our city and in our world right now who identify themselves as Christians are much more excited about being right about Jesus than they are in actually following Jesus. They're much more excited about winning an argument about the Bible and Jesus than they are about laying down their life for the people who God has sent us to do so for don't miss it. It's an ingredient. It's a part of the anatomy of Peter's denial. He acted too quickly. But then the last two I think are the probably most powerful. He followed from a distance. He followed too far off. And that begins the passage we are today. It says that Peter had followed in verse 54, followed Jesus, followed him at a distance you see, Peter had also, he'd already had kind of a violent exchange. He'd all he'd already kind of run and tucked and covered and ran out and tried to abandon Jesus, but he came back from fleeing into the darkness, and then he began to follow the proceedings as a casual observer, seeking to remain anonymous. He was trying to keep a safe distance between himself and Jesus. He was hoping to preserve his own life and his own safety. I mean, he didn't want to be executed alongside Jesus. This is the same Peter had just told Jesus that he would follow him to death. Make sure you remember this. Mark throws this little phrase in here as kind of the culmination, and I would offer like the climax of all these other ingredients that lead to his denial in this chapter. So warning, okay? Some of you in this room, I love you. I'm going to tell you this because I love you. Like, this Jesus thing sounds really cool, and you'd like to mix it in with all the other stuff you really like. Beware, friend, that is no different than following Jesus at a distance, right? Even now, you're like, I'm going to see what's going on here. It's kind of this phenomenon. Look at all these nice people. I'm going to hang around with them and kind of have a sense of approval in them, but following Jesus closely, I don't know. Let me just warn you, be careful, all right? The good news is this. Jesus is using all these things to draw you closer, okay? Okay? So the fact that you're here listening and not throwing chairs at me or tomatoes at me right now, uh, 1 Corinthians tells us is actually evidence of the Holy Spirit working. No one can say that Jesus is Lord unless by the Holy Spirit. So just be excited. Good news, Jesus is stirring your affections and stirring your mind up toward this greater truth that He is good. But beware. If that's just kind of something you want to watch from a distance... If following Jesus closely begins to terrify you, beware. That's the Holy Spirit, I believe, undermining your own idols in your own life that are hindering you from experiencing the presence and love of Jesus. Beware, it's the anatomy of betrayal here. Following following Jesus at a distance, according to Mark here, is the same thing as denying Him. Following Jesus at a distance is equivalent to following Jesus not at all. In the same way that like, kind of loving and being in a marriage with my wife at a distance is not the same than really love, loving her and being married to her. Kind of being friends with people is not really friendship. And when things get difficult, that's exposed, is it not? Following Jesus as a, at a distance is not following him at all. So if you find yourself that, if, that's, if you're like, yes, Jonathan, I love what you're saying about Jesus, but this is going to cost me, and therefore I'm a little bit afraid of it, confess that to Jesus. Admit, God, I want to do this. I, I, I'm stirred for this, but I'm afraid of this. I know this is going to cost me. Confess this. Confess it as anatomy of denial. And I think what you'll find is that Jesus will do something amazing. He'll lay down his life for you anyway. The last thing that we see here that Peter did that I think is an anatomy of a a false follower is that it says that he was a comfortable follower of Jesus. Did you catch that? He, he, He came, the words of Mark are pretty explicit, he came warming himself at the fire. He warmed himself by the fire. Not only did he want to be safe, he wanted to be comfortable. And he would rather find comfort Amongst the people who are not followers of Jesus than to experience discomfort and rejection in the presence of Jesus. So here's what I would argue I share this with on a regular basis. There's more than this, but at least the top three idols in our own culture are comfort, approval and power, or control. And we do just about everything we can at some form or another to invest in getting control of something, to find approval, or to have comfort. And we will spend our fortune on comfort or control or approval. And I want you to see what happens here. When you find your comfort anywhere else than in Christ, it's the same as not finding any comfort in Him at all. In the same way that following Jesus at a distance isn't really following Him at all, finding comfort outside of the presence of Jesus is the same as denying Him altogether. At least it leads up to it according to Mark. You see, you get to decide the difference between being comfortable and pointing people to Jesus among them or being comfortable in denying Jesus among them. So I have to be very careful with my words here, right? We that are changed by the gospel are now on mission with the gospel and we have good news to share with the world. And so to that extent, we are very much lovers of the world with the love that Christ had for the world. We, We can't lay down our life like Jesus, right? If greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for a friend. So, so do that. If you get the chance to lay on your life and demonstrate the gospel to someone, great, do that. But if you don't, then the next best thing is to tell them about the one who did. So we're, we're to, to love our city. We are to, to be friends of sinners, friends of self-righteous Pharisees. We are to love these people to the extent that we win the opportunity to share the gospel. But friend, you're the one who gets to decide the line between loving these people for the sake of identifying with Jesus and pointing to Jesus versus loving these people to the extent that you would happily deny Jesus with them. I think maybe you begin to see your own idols of approval start to emerge here, right? Which is scarier life for you? A life with no hope and peace in Jesus or a life with utterly no friends? And this one over here, This is a lonely and terrible thing. It's a lonely and terrible thing that unfortunately our world tells you you can cure by things that you buy, things that you do, things that you say, people that you hang around with, the kind of media you consume, fits you into a particular group of people. But here's what's funny, it has a funny way of not satisfying the way that Jesus can. So here's the question, how comfortable are you with people who are not followers of Jesus? Are you comfortable loving them and looking for opportunities to point them to Jesus? Or like Peter, are you simply comfortable getting your sense of approval and acceptance from them? Drawing near, warming yourself by the fire of approval. What are you compellingly enthusiastic about? Because if it's not Jesus and making Him known, well, that's what He wants for you. He wants to affiliate with you. And if that's not the case, beware, you're probably seeking comfort in something else. Can I warn you from the rest of this chapter on, take it from Peter, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Distance from Jesus creates distance from others. And that distance turns into denial and rejection. And if you distance yourself from Jesus and his people, then you will likely not hear the true words that are spoken over you. And you won't allow anyone to have the relational capital to tell you what's actually true about you. Following at a distance and warming yourself by the fire of people who do not follow Jesus will distance you from the truth. And you will surround yourself with people, can I be honest, who are afraid to tell you the truth. And they're afraid to be honest with you. Let this not be of us. Let us not be the group of people that simply finds our warmth and acceptance in this city, but instead, let us be citizens of a greater kingdom, sent as ambassadors, uh, declaring the good news of Jesus in this embassy we call the church. Loving our city, winning the right to be heard, winning the right for their trust, but ultimately so that we can point them to a greater loyalty, a greater affiliation, a greater inclusion that lasts forever Look at Peter, his distance from Jesus ends up making him a deceiver. The same with us. I want to kind of land maybe one of the things I think this, before we kind of wrap up where Peter ends up, I want to show you, before I contrast this to this, um, if you want to, you can turn with me to Galatians chapter 1 and chapter 2. But I want you to see that this isn't just something that happens once. It isn't just something that happens on, on, a, on a particular basis with Peter, but instead it, it turns into something that's real. It turns into something that actually marks Peter. You see, see, Peter is a deceiver, right? Peter has the opportunity to say, I'm with Jesus, I'm with this guy. Remember, I promised I would die for him, and here's my chance to do that. And he instead is duplicitous. He's, he, he's hypocritical. That is, he doesn't have integrity. Instead, he simply is one way in front of one person and one way in front of another. So in Galatians, Paul is telling these people that their loyalty ought to be of the Gospel more than anything else. And if anyone comes in there and says that there is another Gospel, then he's actually under a curse. And so he tells us that he in fact has an opportunity to demonstrate this Gospel. In verse 18, it says, after three years, Paul, talking to the Galatians, went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Anyone know who that is? Peter. So after three years, it says that I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, and I remained with him for 15 days. And I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. What I'm trying to write you before God, I do not lie. And then I went to the regions to see this. Right. So so he, he, he comes and he meets up with Peter and he confronts him and he says something difficult to his face. He speaks a word of painful truth. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before me, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. Even Titus was not compelled to be circumcised and to take part in some of these deceptive practices. But in verse 11 of chapter 2 it says, When Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, what did he do? I opposed him. To his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. I don't know if you did anyone catch that, like from a distance, distancing himself? I don't know if you caught all that. Before certain men came from James, he was with the Gentiles, he was with these people. But when the other people came, he drew back, he separated himself fearing the circumcision party, the people who believed something. In verse 13 it says, and the rest of the Jews even acted hypocritically along with them." I want you to see that the thing that Peter is condemned of here, the thing that causes him to weep is actually possibly an idol that he even needs to repent of later. So friend, if you find yourself maybe resonating with or relating to Peter and you have a difficult time standing up for Jesus and difficult times beware keep close because you probably have a recurring illness. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Let us put off the flesh because even though Peter denies Jesus and weeps because of it, the distance that he separated himself from Jesus with ends up being something he has to battle later. So friend... If you have distanced yourself from Jesus and from his people, make no mistake about it, you have distanced yourself from people who can really be honest with you. And this is proven true not only here, but proven true a couple decades later in Antioch. So you've seen the anatomy of a liar, of a deceiver, of a denier. Now look at the anatomy of someone who is honest and true. False witness was thrown at Jesus. We heard him say, I'll destroy the temple, taking words out of his mouth, trying to destroy him. And he does something amazing. I don't know if you caught this. Remember, remember the excitement that we have about, oh, I don't know, remember, you know, yoga pants and and all the all the excitement things about like that we want to fight about, like GMOs and organic food and vaccines. Remember that excitement? Did you catch what Jesus did when they accused him of something? He bit his tongue. He, he said nothing. And when given an opportunity to chase a rabbit trail and win an argument, I mean he could have, right? Couldn't he have like, I mean, this is Jesus. He puts people in, his, in their place. He could have easily been like, uh-uh, this is exactly what happened. Could have like mind, Jedi mind-tricked them and messed with them. I mean, he doesn't. What did he do? He just sits there quietly. I'm not going to have enthusiasm for that. Why? So that he could speak the one true word in verse 62. They say, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed One? He says, I am. And then he does something amazing. He quotes Daniel chapter 7 and then quotes Psalm 110. Remember, Mark has been telling us about this all along? Assuming that you and I would know the Old Testament pretty well. I am. I'm the Son of God, the Son of the Blessed One. And you will see the Son of Man quoting Daniel, seated at the right hand of power quoting Psalm 110. And he will be coming with the clouds of heaven. You see, true witness is the willingness to be silent about things that don't matter for the sake of testifying to one thing that does, namely that Jesus is coming. And he is coming as a returning king, a conquering ruler. And you will either be found as one of his kingdom by faith or you will be found one of his enemies by denial. Hear the good news. Jesus not only lays down his life for the people who would betray and abandon him, but he lays down his life for the ones who would accuse and deny him, showing us that Jesus is faithful even in the midst of our unfaithfulness. You know what this means? There's no other document like this in religious history, right? Of of a group of people like being thrown under the bus before they start something amazing, right? If you wanted to, like, say, if if I was faking this and I was telling you a story about why you should be a Christian, the first thing I would do is not to tell you how awful the first followers of Jesus were, right? They denied him. They abandoned him. I'd be like, dude, they were awesome. They were heroes. Venerate them as heroes. Here we go. But here's what I think this means. Because Mark is honest with us about Peter's failure... And he's honest with us about Jesus' faithfulness in spite of their faithlessness. And this is what this means for us the church can be honest about sin, even the sins of the most outspoken leader apostle. We can speak honestly about sin and failure because we are so convinced about Jesus' grace. We can stop hiding. This is bizarre, because I, I don't think, some of you, I don't think you get this. Some of you would call yourselves Christians, but you know what Christians are the best at in our culture? Hiding, hiding and covering up their failures, covering up their mistakes. We're the best at it. We are the absolute best at it. Oh, no, no, I'm, I mean, not me, that wasn't me, absolutely not. Did I see your car at, oh, no, no. I mean, and, and we would trade gray issues for black and white. But what if we were the people so convinced of Jesus' grace for us that we began to honestly and openly confess our failure and inadequacy of of any merit? Here's what I think this looks like for us, and I'll just land on this. This means that we as Christians don't trade gray issues for black and white issues. Okay? By gray issues, I mean the things that are kind of difficult to deal with and difficult to admit, and we trade them for things that are black and white. This is one of my favorites alcohol, right? This is where Christians, people would call themselves Christians, uh, call themselves Christians would trade a gray issue for black and white. I can make a biblical case for you. You should never touch alcohol for the rest of your life, right? Samson, Noah, right? Dude got drunk, cursed his son, Um, right? John the Baptist. I can make a good case that you're some people in the Bible. You should never touch alcohol again. I could, but I could also make a really good case that you should drink alcohol. Paul tells Timothy, simmer down, dude, drink a little wine, calm your stomach down. He was freaking out. And Jesus is like, hey, this wine, this is my blood, right? I mean, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I could make either case. It's kind of a gray issue. And do you know one thing that Christians wouldn't argue on? And that is one of the Ten Commandments, namely that you should not lie. And isn't it funny that sometimes you will trade a gray issue, namely like a choice that we might make in this world, for a black and white issue, namely the choice to lie about it. Most of the black and white sins that we encounter are a result of trying to cover up the gray mistakes we make. And rather than saying, hey, my bad, I really failed at this. We go, will you forgive me? That was a mistake. And instead of trying to justify it or lie about it, I don't even know what you're talking about. Did you catch that? I love that. He goes, the, the person asked, this is, this is the huh response from Peter. Did you get this? When somebody asks you a question you don't want to answer, and you go, huh? Right, like, did, did, you forget to, did you forget to get the, the thing that you were supposed to not forget? Huh? Right? I don't even, what do you mean? I don't even know what you're talking about. The I don't understand response. And just to, to be clear, they come back and go, No, no, this Jesus, is he the one? Are you with him? And he completely denies it. Completely denies it. Do, would they have killed him? I don't know. It's kind of gray, isn't it? Would they have hung him, destroyed him, beat him? We don't know. It's kind of gray. But he traded a gray issue for a black and white. And he'd rather lie in the face of fear than to just admit the truth and accept the consequences. Friend, so should we. Think of the political ramifications of this. You see, the gospel is deeply political. The gospel isn't partisan, but it's deeply political. So imagine what it would look like if the people running for president embraced this, right? Right? We can be honest about sin and failure. Have you ever thought about that? Like, what would Donald Trump look like if he was like, you know what? I apologize for being rude. I'm just really insecure. And you you were making me look bad. And I was so afraid of looking bad that I just started attacking you. Would you forgive me for that? Like, like if he was just like, you know what? I said some of those things. I made them up on the spot. But but it was because I didn't want you to think I was dumb. I wanted you to believe in me. What if he was just honest about it? Like, yeah, you know what? That was out of line on my part. Would you forgive me for that? Here's the funny thing. I think we actually would. Do you see how countercultural the gospel is? What about the other side? What if, like, Hillary was like, hey, you know what? I wasn't really honest about this. I kind of used the language of deception rather than, like, the, the language of revelation. Hey, I think I may have bent the truth a little bit on this. I might, have, I might have done some things I shouldn't have done. Would you forgive me for that? I didn't want you to think bad about me. I didn't want you to think I was a bad person. And so I lied about it. Do you realize how radically countercultural the gospel is? Do you realize what we would begin to look like in this day and age if it began to transform our loyalty? The church can be honest about sin because ultimately Jesus' faithfulness is demonstrated for you and for me in spite of it. And his faithfulness becomes beautifully visible in the midst of our faithlessness. And his true testimony, his promise of grace, stands out in the crowd, even amidst those who would deny him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that our standing before you is not based on our own merit, but instead is based upon your mercy. We thank you so much that you could have very well returned in wrath You very well could have walked out of the grave to to exact revenge on all of those who had abandoned you and betrayed you. You could have very well come out of the grave to destroy and to wield the sword for those of us who have sold you off to the highest bidder. You could have come in and demonstrated your anger for us, for all the opportunities that we've passed up. But God, thank you so much. Thank you, God, that this is not a story about our faithlessness and our failure and rebellion and betrayal, but this is a story about your truthfulness and your faithfulness in spite of our failure. Thank you, Jesus, that this is a story of good news, namely not that that we have somehow deserved your love, but that you have done something that has overshadowed all of our failure. Thank you that this story isn't just about Peter and his mistakes and Peter and his lies. Any more than the story of this world will be told about our mistakes and our lies, but instead the story that will be recounted forever and ever amidst the angels is the story of your mercy. We will not sing of how unworthy we are of your love, but we will sing of how worthy the sacrifice is of the Lamb. We will not shout and mourn about our sorrows, but we will thank you for the forever and ever that you have borne our sorrows. God, all of the instincts in us to defy you and to undermine you and to think differently about you. God, all of these things that cause us insecurity, would we just begin to be the people that are radically loyal to the gospel to the point that we will happily admit it? May we be the people that readily ask for forgiveness, that readily confess our misgivings and our our mistakes and our own sin, knowing full well that this is a story about compassion for sinners. For those of us who have heard this good news, thank you so much that you redeem us. For those of us, maybe this is the first time they've heard the good news that this is a a gift freely given by Jesus Christ. For those of us that have betrayed him, would you begin to stir in our hearts that we would respond obediently and declare this good news over our own lives forever and ever. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.